Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. What is up, everyone? We are here with the man himself, Ben Malik. We are doing an interesting kind of crossover podcast. Ben runs a successful podcast. I'll let him tell you about it in just a second. He also is a really important part of our team, which we're going to discuss in just a moment. For those that don't know, he actually writes the email copy for all of our episodes that have guests. And so people ask all the time, who wrote these emails? I'm like, my man here. So (laughs) he has listened to more Cashflow Connections real estate podcast and pretty much anyone, maybe other than our sound editor who doesn't miss an episode. But Ben, welcome to the program. And also thanks for having me on your show because I know you're going to post this to your podcast as well. Of course, it's a pleasure. It's officially been a year of real estate milestones. So it's awesome to have you on the podcast for the anniversary episode, especially because you're one of the influences for starting the podcast. So it's an awesome full circle experience. I'm excited. Totally. So First of all, thanks for joining. One of the reasons that I wanted to interview you, and I also would be interested in you know you interviewing me for your show as well, is being that you've listened to so much of our show and you haven't been in this business that long. <laughs> I'm just very curious. Tell a little bit about your story, first of all, and then I would love to hear how you know, your learnings, your understanding of the space has evolved and changed, and especially as it relates to you know listening to our show. Of course. So I'm a senior at Tulane University. I got one semester left of college, just finished my finals today. And I've been interested in real estate for a very long time now. I remember my mom's a real estate attorney. So we'd walk around DC and she'd point to a building and she's like, that's my deal. I was like, wow, my mom builds buildings. It's amazing. And little did I know she's just, she's a lawyer and that some of you guys may think she's a necessary evil, but I still had it in my head that I wanted to be a part of that. And that I wanted to you know participate in this amazing space that we all interact with every day. And just in in that process, it's, it's been just continual learning since then, um, discovering podcasts, you know, hearing people like Hunter talk about all the amazing things that go on, learning about structures and and whatnot. And yeah, it's been it's been incredible experience. But in terms of what I've learned, I think the first thing that I remember learning, the first thing that blew my mind listening to to the podcast was the AENC strategy, the attract, educate, nurture, close. Because I was like, okay, this is like, it just seemed so intuitive and it made so much sense. And um, I I wanted to mention that I actually have used it for an ultimate Frisbee fundraiser that I, I taught my team the AENC strategy and we we used it and we raised $12,500 in donations for our Frisbee team. So that That's was awesome. how I knew that it really worked. Cool. Well, just for the people that are listening, especially on your show for this, explain what that is. So the strategy is attract, educate, nurture, close. So the the key is that, or I guess the, I, I would say that the the theme is the worst time to, or the worst time to raise money is when you need, when you actually need the money, right? So that the capital raising process is an ongoing process that starts Starts now, I guess, right? So the 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 beginning of I guess the top of the the system is that you want to find some way to bring people into your orbit, to attract them into your to into your network, which could be coming onto other people's podcasts, 
telling your story and whatnot. And then once they're in your orbit, you can continue to educate them with, you know, knowledge and teaching people about, you know, what makes real estate great. Tell people about your story, just continually showing that you are credible by, by educating people. And then also them getting a lot of value out of things that you say, they're like, wow, that's really, that's helped me so much. And then that nurturing process is ongoing. You want to stay in front of people that you're your target audience. You want to continue to have multiple touch points with them. And by the time you, you launch a deal, you're not even going to have to ask for money because they're already, you know, so eager to, to give you the money because, you know, you, they, they're realizing that, you know, the person that is credible, who they can trust. So, and it, it definitely works in, in my experience. Love it. So just how did you do that for Frisbee though? That's what I'm curious. <laughs> I'm very interested. Did you get a platform <laughs> to focus on that or how did you do that? So it's really, so it started with launching a newsletter and then having spreading that newsletter through the players on the team, through Tulane news, other newsletters that are mm-hmm. in the orbit of, of Tulane using the parent page, just getting people to telling our story, honestly, telling, because we, we were on our way to nationals, which is uh, like, you know, at that point, we we're the best team at Tulane that most people haven't heard about. So really, we just wanted to get the word out and then educate people about the team, educate people about what Frisbee is. We're not just throwing, you know, pieces of plastic on the beach where it's like a, it's a real game where there's teams and it's a, it's a competition. So we want to educate people about what it actually was. And then by the time we launched the fundraiser, people were you know already looking for a way to support us because they you know fell in love with our story and fell in love with who we were. So yeah, that's it, it worked pretty well. Cool. I'm glad I asked because that's very interesting. So let's switch over. I know that you also wanted to talk about like my, can you remind me the name of the show again, one more time for the listeners? Yeah, it's Real Estate Milestones. Okay, cool. So let me first ask you what your big first real estate milestone is, and then we can talk about mine as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, I never, I never have to answer that question. So my first milestone in real estate besides, you know, reading loan docs as a 10 year old, because I wanted to learn would be in around the time we got kicked out of school from COVID. We yeah. got, everyone probably remembers it all too well. The entire economy shut down. I really wanted to use that summer to learn about real estate, but there's no internships. There's no anything going on. But I, I thought that that would be a perfect opportunity to learn on my own and learn with my friends. So my friend and I started a, a company where we'd go to College Park, Maryland. That's the University of Maryland's campus. And we look for single family properties where we could buy the property, add an extra bedroom. So add an extra renter. So let's say there was four, now there's five. That'd be a 20% increase in rent without each individual having to pay more out of their own pocket. Because as college students, we knew that we just think about our rent as our, you know, individually, right? So the entire property would increase in value and that would um, that was our plan. And we got to our, our first tour and it came, the, the lead was off market. It came from a broker who we became, we developed a relationship with and we, we looked around the property and it was perfect. The guy was a builder. So he already, it already was up to spec. We, he even said he would add the extra bedroom for us and wrap that into the price. And on that first day, we shook hands on a, on a number and agreed to, to buy the, the property. And this is the, the most novice story there is, right? After afterwards, we got the uh, the docs, the documents. I um, started reviewing it and realized that the broker said that she was representing the the seller. And we took we took her word on a lot of things. We thought that she was, you know, we took her advice, and we thought that her advice was was impartial. And then we realized 
that we had to check her comps, obviously, during due diligence, was that her comps were not even as comparable as, as she made it out to be. And we had to walk away from that deal. And that is was really, that was one of the biggest failures in my life because I've never had to walk away from a handshake deal. My Where is my bond? But I couldn't, you know, throw away my entire life savings and the life savings of my family, not the life savings of my family, but my, my family's money as well on, you know, a rookie mistake. So that really taught me the importance of due diligence, the importance of, you know, understanding who your team is and the yeah. relationship there and, you know, digging into the deal and understanding and understanding the, the nitty gritty of it. And so, yeah, that was, that was the biggest first milestone in real estate. Cool. First milestone. Okay. Can I answer it as well? Yeah, please. Okay. So I've talked a ton about the first time I tried to raise money and it didn't go well. And mm -hmm. I wrote about that. I've talked about it on many, many shows. So I don't really need to go into details about that particular one here, but I'll kind of, I'll kind of go this direction. I was very, very fortunate to be exposed to the more advanced strategies early in my career and avoid some of the rookie mistakes for sure, but also just playing a small game. I don't know if it's just one particular moment, but like the thing that I have found in business is that those who are able to see the bigger picture succeed and those who are able to see the bigger, bigger picture succeed more. Those who are willing to play a bigger game. And it matters what boat you're in, so to speak. It matters what vehicle you're using. And if you're playing a game where, let's say you're a welder, for example, you can make six figures early in your life versus someone who is going to play a very different game. But the challenge is it's very difficult to make $200,000 as a welder, even if you are the best welder in the United States. So when you play a game like real estate, particularly commercial real estate, particularly syndications, the likelihood of the upside is just so high. The predictability of outcome is so high. So I have to say that a really significant milestone in my life is the 2008 crash wiping out a lot of players in the space that were inexperienced. The time at which I was most inclined to enter the market being right around that time, but going to networking events as grueling as it was, that was really how I formed my original network. There were no real podcasts about the topic. The topic of syndications wasn't really talked about publicly. It was illegal to talk about deals at the time. So I think those that really that early milestone was getting in the in-person networking world that I despise now, just from a personality standpoint. <laughs> but those relationships that I created, many of whom I'm very close personal friends with now, you know, I never will take it for granted that a lot of that had to do with luck. It would have been very difficult for me to move to California in 2004, let's say, establish a network of super savvy people. It'd been very hard for me to know who was trustworthy. And like, I never want to take that for granted. So that would definitely be a big milestone in my career. And I can't take credit for all of it, but I certainly will reap the benefits of it for many years to come. Yeah, absolutely. That's funny because my one of my first milestones related to in-person networking was Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference in the beginning of the year. That was, you know, where I met a lot of my network in terms of the people who I knew I can trust. You know, I connected with a lot of people who are on the stage, people who clearly knew what they're talking about. You know, that was an amazing experience. Totally. And I appreciate you saying that and mentioning that. And we're really proud of those relationships that we've created. And are you going to be able to make it to Race Fest, by the way? 
I haven't solidified my plans. I had a, I have a friend coming in from out of cool. town. So maybe, maybe if I can, if I can coordinate it, but cool. I'd hope. Yeah. Yeah. All good. Okay. So I'd love to hear about some of your key takeaways. As you probably noticed from the content that we've been putting out, you know, there's a lot of turmoil in the marketplace. I'll leave it open-ended. Like what have you learned over the last year or so of like listening to our show religiously, writing the content out? Give me some thoughts. So in terms of the idea, like one of the themes is just the fact that, um, you know, we're trying to get asymmetric returns. Like, can we have a return that's better than the risk that we're taking or asymmetric returns in terms of the relationship? And what I, what I like, had never really realized is that I learned a lot in, I guess, management classes in, in school about competitive advantage. But when you would talk about competitive advantage in terms of sponsors with whom you, um, you invest with, that was something that, you know, really opened up to my mind because I always kind of thought about diversification as like a strategy that, you know, should be employed, right? I know a lot of people think of diversification as like having tech stocks and food stocks and whatnot, but, you know, we want to have different asset classes in terms of diversification. But then I also thought about diversification in terms of geography, right? Obviously, you know, Phoenix is different than uh, DC and then in terms of asset class, right? So office is different than retail, but I hadn't really thought about it that different strategies could also be a different form of diversification. And when I, when I kind of heard you speak about that, that was the, the first thing that I realized is, you know, there's an extra layer to the game that I hadn't really, um, you know, thought about. And that was, I think that was one of the first, I guess, in terms of like financial philosophy expansion that I got from the show. I, you know, if yeah. you wanted to talk a little bit about that, I'd be. Sure, sure. Yeah. Just for context though, when you think of the different strategies, give me some examples just so I have an understanding of what direction you're going with that. Yeah. I mean, one way that I would think about that is in terms of, you can invest with someone whose culture is, um, you, you know, there's a bunch of military people versus people yeah. who had a, a background in tech, which I thought that was one interesting aspect. Then also mm -hmm. the aspect of, let's take, you know, Rise48, being fully vertically integrated on both sides and owning the property right next door. So they already know the comps are, they've already proved it out the model. Like yep. when you, you well, no matter what's going on in the, in the economy, if you, you know, know the rents for that there and that you could do the same thing, the rents would now be the same. Like that's, you know, that gives you a lot of assurance of the return you're going to get relative to the risk you're taking. Totally. Yeah. That is a really important piece of it. And, you know, to your point, diversification is just such a myth the way it's usually presented to people. I mean, all liquid assets are extremely tied together. Very few of them, unless they're truly inversely correlated, they're all very correlated. It's very hard to think that, let's say, Johnson & Johnson stock and Apple stock, which are totally separate companies, they're going to experience very similar outcomes. They may, like Apple may be more volatile than Johnson & Johnson, but at the end of the day, the liquid nature of them creates this one-to-one -one ratio. And it might not be one-to-one, -one, it might be like 0.8, but still 0.8 is pretty freaking high. When I think about something like an illiquid asset, which is only providing cash flow, and while that illiquid nature of it is a little bit of a, a challenge for obvious reasons, that really helps people's mindset because you don't have to watch your self-storage investment lose 30% of its value. It may have, right? It may have. The multiple on which the income is traded may change. But if it's not trading, if your asset isn't trading, you don't have to experience that gain or loss. That's really helpful from like an emotional standpoint for a lot of investors. Most people that want to be past measures don't want to contemplate their net worth like that, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, I think it's funny because 
huge key from the show that we could go into is how to tell a story, which, you know, you're one of the best storytellers I, I know in podcasting. And the reason I bring that up is because uh, the last straw moment is something that, that you, you mentioned a lot. And, and I just think that, you know, that goes with the theme of, I guess, if you want to tell your last straw moment, I know it's been sat on the show before, but for my listeners, and yeah, just this is a big lesson there. Totally. So, and yeah, I'm happy to do it. Like I said, I've talked about this before, but most of the people listening to this, when they start learning about finance, they're taught by people that the stock market is basically end-all be-all. Now, over the last couple of years, I've tried my damnedest, and a lot of people have as well, to make that a thing of the past. And I think we have. A lot of people listening to this show right now can't even remember a world where if you said you were an investor, there's only one thing that meant, which is either day trading or long-term buy and hold in the stock market. That's 10 years ago literally 10 years ago. And I'm not claiming that it's my responsibility that I'm the one uh, that did it, but I certainly <laughs> tried. You know what I mean? And the reason I did that is because after 2008 in the United States, I understood the assets were all correlated and that the liquidity in the market comes and goes. And so every now and then, let's say every 80 years, you're going to have a liquidity crisis typically in the United States. You're going to have a banking crisis. You're going to have a challenge with debt implosions, defaults, maybe bailouts and central bank challenges. That is a risk that I think anyone that is investing needs to know. You need to know that that's a once every 70 to 80 year type of thing, if not less. Okay. So if you're in the United States, you accept that risk and you participate in the game because it's probably still the best way to protect and grow your future, which is to be invested. And I accept that. And when I was in college in 2008, when that happened, I started studying the track record of the United States in terms of these cycles. I started reading every book I could about the nature of banking crises and what potentially would happen if there was a lot of central planning in the government and in the economy. And I said, okay, this is a great time to invest. I mean, look, they're going to print money, trillions of dollars. I'm going to be buying quality assets. And I have a feeling we're going to be better off later down the road. I basically viewed it as a big bet on America. Now in this show, I have, you know, poo-pooed some of the problems with American culture and the political system. And I'm still <laughs> very much on board with that. But look at the reality of the situation. Almost all of the most successful companies in the world are in the United States. Almost all of the richest people in the world want to send their children to the United States. So let's just make sure that we know all this. I'll put it another way. Some of my like libertarian friends may think that in the event of a world crisis or some sort of, you know, existential threat, they want to, for some reason, be in some ridiculous and obscure third world country, not me. <laughs> right? I do not want mm -hmm. to be in uh, Uganda if things pop off for real. The combination right. of the predictability of the legal structure, the overall, the culture, uh, the, I mean, the predictability of legal structure, the protection of property rights, I can talk crap about all of them, but it's pretty freaking good. Mm-hmm. And the geographic locations of the United States, there's a lot of room in the United States. There's a lot of things that are unique that we take for granted sometimes. But here's what happened. After the crisis in 2008, and I started investing, in 2010, when Europe and the central banks in Europe went through the same thing, I basically realized there's no way I could have possibly predicted that. 
Like certainly I know a little bit about Apple. I know a little bit about Johnson and Johnson. I've heard these names for decades, but I don't have, I can't name one company that's on a European stock exchange. Not one, at least not to my knowledge. So the fact that the European debt crisis where Portugal was defaulting on debt, Italy was defaulting in debt, particularly Greece was defaulting on debt. And all of a sudden, all anyone cared about was the Greece and German bond yields. That is the definition of my last straw moment. That's the moment I realized there's no way that a small company, or by the way, despite the fact that they don't want to admit it, a large company could have ever predicted this. If you go back and look at the outlook of Goldman, JP Morgan, uh, JP, any of those leading investment banks or banks, none of them thought there was going to be a 40% correction in European stocks. So they don't have the resources. They don't have the infrastructure. They can't possibly predict it. Neither can I. I need to get out of this casino that is rife mm-hmm. with corruption and central planning, which is very difficult to predict and is not based on supply and demand. And so I was eager to move money out of the stock market myself and also my mom's in particular, and I was ready to go anywhere. I was looking for truly uncorrelated assets that were simple enough so that you could conduct accurate due diligence. And I wasn't really partial to real estate. I was happy to look at anything. I looked at franchises. I wanted to buy restaurants. I wanted to buy ATM machines and own and operate them. But at the end of the day, by far the most, from my view, risk-favorable creator of wealth especially when you account for the predictability of that creation of wealth is real estate and especially large real estate assets, hundred units or more multifamily, 400 units or more self storage, hundred units or more senior living, you know, hundred beds or more mobile home parks. And that's will, that's really where the investment thesis of ASIM capital was formed by necessity. I would much rather put every piece of dollars in the stock market, go to Mexico and chill. But I just think it's, not a good investment thesis. And I also think on a risk-adjusted basis, especially when you include the lack of cash flow that the stock market provides, it's a total no-brainer. And that's what let me here today. Yeah, absolutely. And um, definitely have a similar last moment. I actually came up with this recently. So I wanted to see if, if, I'm, if I'm doing it right. Basically, I had a similar experience. I was in school. I was learning investments in equities. I had gotten, I just learned the five-factor Fama French model and the hmm. CAPM index regression. Okay. I was like, wow, now I could finally be the stock market. I finally know how the experts do it. And then I was like, wait. And they started looking at the assumptions. I was like, wait. So I'm supposed to say that the value of the stock is because of all the values of the stock over the last five years. And, you know, the, you know, we were supposed to like calculate the, the beta and that the alpha is like this little tiny piece. I'm like, so the only way to make the money is to, find a little like breadcrumb on the top of, you know, this stock that may, may or may not be entirely correlated with the market. And then I, I realized that basically, so the teacher at that point said that you can't, you can't be the stock market. I was like, there has to be a way. She's like, oh, actually, if you are, a, if you're a company that has, you know, huge satellites with an incredible amount of proprietary data, and you can, you can actually take advantage of these little breadcrumbs by high frequency trading, you know, and taking advantage of these things. And there's a 10 minute window where you can make these trades. And I was like, wait, so you're telling me the only way to beat the market is if I join a giant corporation and use some artificial intelligence to trade breadcrumbs. I was like, wait, what if I could go and buy a property from someone who didn't want to fix it? 
for a fair value. I could fix that property, add some wash and dryers, make it look nicer. And the people who are living there are going to be willing to pay more in, in rent for that pro- for the, the living at the property. And I could sell it at this new rental rate at the same or a lower cap rate. That seems like a way to predictably make money. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm thinking that you know the stock market is a zero-sum game where for every trade, there's a winner and a loser. But in this, in this example in, in real estate, the person who sold you the property is a winner because they got to get out because that's what they wanted to do. And you're a winner because you got to predictably generate cash flow and have an exit or continue to hold and generate cash flow. And it just, it just seemed like a no-brainer. And then uh, you know, I haven't looked back since then. Totally. So are you currently like looking at, like, tell me a little bit more about like the way that you're looking at deals. I know you're currently in college. Like what's your plan? Like how do you want to participate in the space? So my plan is to find someone to partner with or find a team to join. Maybe, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm young. I have a lot to learn. I've, I've learned a lot, but um, I really want to have an opportunity to get more hands-on. I think one way to do that would be to, you know, work for a company that has a lot of experience really good leaders that I could ask a lot of questions with, you know, I could really get into the weeds and actually do um, a ton of deals. And I think that that would be, um, you know, one way to, to, I guess, you know, leverage my degree and then get a start in the industry. And I mean, if, if I end up having a job and that's how I start in the industry, I, I'd also want to, you know, own property on my own. So um, thinking that I could house hack on the side to do my first deal by myself, or I could, you know, partner with someone who, I could bring some value to, you know, I have a, I have time. I can crunch the numbers pretty, pretty well. And, um, you know, partner with someone and start doing deals that way. So, you know, I think what's great is in finance, we know options is the name of the game. If you have a lot of options, that's a, that's an advantage. So I know there's a, there's a lot of ways I can do it, but they all, they all lead to the same place, which is owning, owning a lot of real estate, a diverse portfolio in the future. Totally. Totally, man. Well, that's cool. So, um, as you know, the market is changing interest rates are rising. We're probably in a recession right now, depending on what your definition of it is. What is your view in terms of like the next six months? How does this play out? Just based on what you've heard. And I know you've heard the sentiment change from these discussions we've had. So to tie it back into the show, I was very sympathetic to your view that interest rates are headed down to the right. And that's yeah. that's just their direction. And the logic made perfect sense because I'm also someone who, you know, it, that contrarian way of thinking of you know the Fed being this this unit that you know can't service the debt if the interest rates go up too high and thinking that you know just the go- governmental prerogative would be interest rates down to the right and I think in the long term that's probably true you know the premises that we've made in that in that assum- or in that logic still hold but in the in the very very short term I see an incredible amount of opportunity um, I worked at a a lender this summer and. It's not proprietary data or information. We all know this. There's a lot of people who took bridge loans the last two two years. Of course, what are they going to do? Their exit assumptions were probably you know a couple, maybe 100 to 200 basis points higher on their Fannie Freddie loans. They're they're probably not getting that. You know they're not getting that. And if they are getting like fixed debt, it's going to be at a lower LTV than they thought they were going to get. Probably. Yeah. So I guess the opportunity is there's going to be a lot of people who need to sell because that's the only option they have with these, these um, bridge loans coming due. So I guess the people who are going to succeed are the people who are going to who have the capital on standby to take advantage of these opportunities coming out to the market. Totally. Me too. I think that there's certainly, 
you know, we're making some moves behind the scenes to really go all in right now. And it's difficult to do that, but we are, you know, we are going to go all in. We're starting an operational company where we're going to be operating real estate ourselves. We really? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just have to for a lot of reasons, but the reason we're doing it now is because this is when it makes the most sense. This is when you can double down. This is when you can have the most confidence in the world. And I've been through this before. Uh, we have the stomach for it. We have the balance sheet for it. We are going to go and do it. But everyone else should too. Everyone else should too. I cannot tell you because I coach real estate entrepreneurs, right? And I, people are like, yeah, we're going to fire some people because like this is, I'm like, what? No, you need to freaking wait three months and then hire the people your competitors are firing. Like you're going to have a ton of great talent and, but there's just such a difference of the sentiment when you buy an asset truly at a discount, it changes everything. It's interesting because so many people wait for these moments. And then when they happen, they are like, well, this doesn't count. It's way different than I thought. It's like, well, what did you think was going to happen? So I'm don't want anyone to lose any properties. That's not my goal. I know some people are under stress and there's going to be capital calls and there's going to be challenges, but you've got to be able to participate now in order to balance out the fact that this may happen later down the road with you and your businesses, or even you, even if you're dealing with it now. So what I would suggest to those people is to really lean into this opportunity, be very communicative with your investor base whatever the normal cadences of reporting, I would probably increase it by three or four times. Meaning if you do quarterly reporting, you should probably move to monthly. If you do monthly, maybe you should put out something every week or something like that every two weeks. And this will really reduce not only the uncertainty of your investor base, but also the challenges so many people have when it comes to raising money because investors are just scared. So if you're listening to this right now and you want to succeed, I'm telling you, we are putting our money where our mouth is. The deals you're going to do over the next two years will be the best deals you've seen in the last 10. So there you go. And probably the best deals you'll see over the next 10 as well. This is that opportunity. So I know we have a bunch to get to and you have a lightning round as well. But before before we do that, anything else on that particular topic? Yeah, because I mean, I, I just remember last year thinking that, you know, I'm so unlucky. Like I, I don't get the exit. I don't get you know, all this. All these deals are so expensive. Like I don't get the opportunity to start in real estate because you know all these none of these deals make sense. And now you know things are changing. Prices are coming down. And now I'm realizing it wouldn't have been great if I already had the infrastructure to be able to take advantage of these deals. Exactly. And, exactly. Um, yeah. And so I guess on that, on that, like part of the sentiment that the like the emotional aspect of. Are, of being a capital raiser or being an investor is, I think, something that's underlooked. You know, you could be, you could have the best returns, but if your if your investors don't feel comfortable because you're not being transparent, they're not going to become a repeat investor. And then even on terms of talking to investors for the first time, that you know, you always say it's it's about establishing credibility, showing that your time is valuable, and establishing that first emotional connection because that's going to be what it causes them to invest. You know, not you know, all these, not that, because you're the smartest person ever and, and you know, totally. all these things about the deals. And so I just wanted to touch on that because that's a, it's a big theme that I've picked up on through the entire uh, time listening to, to the podcast. Well, I appreciate that. And yes, I totally agree. And there's, there's a lot more of that coming. We've got a bunch of great speakers coming up on the show and others and at our conferences and stuff. So super excited. All right, fire round, hit me with it. And can I reverse their questions as well? So I'll do fire round with you as well. You asked me, I'll ask you. Sounds good. So if you have any superpower, what would that be? Definitely inspiring other people. 
Awesome. That, that my friends is actually the most lucrative skill in the world, which I have previously said raising money and I'm going to stick to yeah. it for all of our marketing, but uh, it's nothing compared to being able to multiply that skill, right? So that's a multiplier. If you can inspire other people, if you know how to raise capital, you can teach other people how to raise capital and then you can inspire them to work their butt off for you. That is how you actually get a lot done in this world is multiply your skills as opposed to hone your skills. So that's my answer. Yeah, that's that's awesome. What about you? Yeah, well, I was gonna say um, super speed. <laughs> I've always identified as being, a, a, you know, pretty fast. But I just think it would be great that you know I feel there's like so much time lost in in traveling. You know, I'm, I'm very I'm into productivity as as I know you and your listeners are. And you know, would it be great if I could just go get my my uh, my Chinese food right now and come back and and you know eat it real quick? So. Totally. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And I could do I could do diligence, go do my site tours. Oh, just just so many things that become easier. It's like <laughs> breeze or whatever from the Incredibles. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. I mean, running fast, literally running. super speed. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. What else you got? I love. Yeah. So, what's your favorite book, or what's the one that's helped you the most? Well, I'd say that Dot Com Secrets probably made me the most money uh, because, <laughs> in terms of clearly i'll put it this way if i hadn't read that book i would have cost myself the most money so i almost sold my book exclusively on amazon which would allow me not to get the email addresses of those who buy my book and dot com secrets was a book that outlined how to create a funnel which allow you to sell a book for free plus shipping and then convert those email addresses to you know people moving forward with a higher ticket program, which is Raise Masters and later our elite level capital collective, which is our, our elite level mastermind. So I almost blew that, truly. I don't even know where I'd be right now if I hadn't read that book at that exact time. So that's my answer. That's awesome. And I definitely read that book for your recommendation. I would like to shout out two books. So first, how could I not mention Raising Capital for Real Estate? That's what led me. Yeah, right. That's what led me here. Like genuinely, that's I read that book and I was like, wow, this is amazing. He literally told me how to do it. Like, this is incredible. So I reached out to you on LinkedIn and you say, go connect with Adam Carswell. And that's how I started my podcast because Adam Carswell was the inspiration for my starting my podcast, speaking of superpower. And so that's, you know, that's how we've ended up at this point. So yeah, it's truly, truly special book, but a book that I recently read that I think your, you and your listeners would love, especially is The Machiavellians by James Burnham. It's talks about, you know, goes through the history of the Machiavellian line of thinking, but it's really in line with a lot of things you, you talk about in terms of there's a political, I guess like the political system is run by the rulers and there's the people who are, you know, not the rulers and that there's, you know, everything that, that is said by the political speakers are not, it's, it's not, there's no logic to it. It's not like they're not speaking true you know real meaning there's an underlying real meaning to all these like formal meanings that are just kind of ways of you know getting you to to vote them into power so that they can perpetuate their power and it's like really that the key of the book is that power is the only thing that could stop power that that's all and, and freedom is is the only like the only way we can have freedom is if there's power that checks the power and it's a really really interesting book and i think it goes in line with the libertarian um you know point of view and i think there's a lot of good points talking posts in, in the book. So what do I recommend it? Cool. What advice would you give to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps? I mean, 
This sounds self-serving, but it's just because I tried really hard. So I tried to create a playbook for that. If you want to do what we've done, we created a a coaching program specifically designed for that. So is my best attempt at giving the breadcrumbs to where we are today. And that's my book. If your budget is $7, there you go. Raisingcapitalforrealestate.com. If your book is $44, you can get the audio book. If your budget is a lot more, like tens of thousands, you can join our coaching program where we've had, you know, people raise 5 million, 10 million, 50 million, $100 million. And we actually just surveyed our audience where the average person that's been in our group 12 months or more the average person has raised $4.5 million. That's average. Now you may be thinking, well, isn't there like a couple of people that have raised like a ton of money and doesn't that front load that? And it's like, yeah, it does. So don't you want to be with those people? <laughs> like, don't you want to be around those exact <laughs> people? So, um, and by the way, that doesn't include right. the money that I've raised, which is which would you know move the needle a little bit. So that is it. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to raisingcapitalforrealestate.com forward slash never dash scramble. If you're just listening to this, you know, we grew to from zero to 300 members in less than 22 months. And the reason for that is not just because of luck, it's because what we do works. And so we grew organically. Like people, once they saw what we created and they wanted to share with their friends and we just basically took off like a hockey stick. That's why. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. I guess my answer to that question would be I guess to bring it back a theme from your from from your show is that you know I I guess it it helps to have a, a mentor definitely who can inspire you someone who can inspire you because that's how I started this podcast and that I mean you know I was thinking about starting a podcast for for a, a long time or not a long time but for for a little while and I was but I'm, I'm a planner I wanted to make sure it made sense it was perfect and I realized that the only way to I was scared that I hadn't found my voice. And I realized the only way to find my voice was to use it. And eventually I, you know, I've gotten to this point where I can speak fluently on a, on a podcast, um, but it really started by just practicing and using my voice and that, you know, not being afraid to get started. And to bring that into, to the, you know, theme from your podcast, the idea of the attractive character was something that was really interesting to me because, you know, some people, you know, don't think they know everything and then they can start a podcast. And the reason I started the podcast was so that I can, I can learn a lot more. And yeah. so even if I wasn't the expert, I was the reporter who would bring on someone like Hunter, who was the expert and I could have his, I could have, you know, I could be a conduit for his expertise and we all could learn from that together. And, you know, that could be, that could be anyone who wanted to take, you know, choose out a attractive character too. Totally. Yeah. And it's been really helpful in our business and it's been totally game-changing to not be a faceless entity, but to have some real personality behind it and also be authentic because then you attract people that you really like. And that's exactly what our business is like, both on the the info product coaching side of things and also the, the investor side of things. So it's really helped. Awesome. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> so <laughs> listen, before we jump off, let the listeners know how they can learn more about you and your show. Mm-hmm. And I'll say the same for me. Awesome. So. If you want to learn more about the show, follow along with what I'm doing. The best place to go would be LinkedIn. Connect with me. It's just linkedin.com, Benjamin-Malik, M-A-L-E-C-H. And every week I post a link to my podcast where I write out um, some copy. I write out the description um, of key takeaways from the episode. So if you you want to have a couple of minutes a week to learn something from some, you know, some poignant points from experts. It'd be a great place to to do that. So follow me on LinkedIn. Cool. 
And for me, raisingcapitalforrealestate.com, that's the book for eight bucks. If you're an investor and you want to learn about investing with us, uh, you can go to asymcapital.com. Awesome. Well, as I like to end the show, Hunter, everyone listening, keep making milestones. Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support and keep making milestones. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.